Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. Today we're speaking with Christine Sleater. Her novel is Family History in Black and White. She's also the author of White Bread and Transformative Ethnic Studies in Schools. Christine, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. It's a pleasure. So first of all, tell me, what were the seeds of this novel? Well, one seed is my decades-long work as a professor in multicultural education and ethnic studies, which has engaged me with issues of racism, especially as it relates to education and particularly work in the classroom. When I'm teaching, which I'm not doing now because I'm retired, but I I spent decades teaching, um, I would also often use myself as an example of how whiteness works. And this was particularly when I had classes that were predominantly white and I was teaching about racism. And I would pull from examples of my own everyday life to illustrate larger concepts of racism. But I couldn't go very far back in history and use personal examples because I didn't know my own family's history. So when I retired, I began to do research on my family history. And in that process, I started to see my family's story in relationship to systems of racism, class, and culture in the U.S. Um, And a lot of people, when they do family history, don't do that. People of color are more likely to situate their families within those relationships, but white people aren't. So I started writing about critical family history in some of my academic work, which is a process of situating family within larger contexts of power relations. But back to the novel, a central question that it explores is in what ways Are the histories of black and white Americans connected? And what relevance does that have for now? How does the legacy of slavery impact on us today? When a white person is forced to confront his or her ancestors' experience as slave owners, what happens? How does the person make sense of the past and its ongoing manifestations? And this is important because the U.S. continues to live with the legacies of slavery and colonization. And these are uncomfortable legacies for people who are white. Um, Those of us who are white tend to want to airbrush out the horrors, the exploitation of slavery and the colonization of indigenous people. And we also try to disconnect the present from the past because there are many uncomfortable things in the present that um, we often don't want to deal with. And so as a result, we don't see racism very deeply and we don't understand current issues of race very well because we don't understand the roots of those current issues. So you could take, for example, the police murders of unarmed black people. Black folks tend to see that as an ongoing manifestation of white people's use of violence as a means of control, which was certainly during times of slavery, um, lynchings after emancipation, and today um, police and vigilante murders like we just saw in Buffalo. White people tend to see these as individual incidents, um, as aberrations in what's otherwise of a fairly just system. And white people tend not to see the past present through line. People of color are much more likely to see that through line passed into the present. And white people 
to engage with the issues in order to be able to address them and to see how the past continues to play out in the present, to stick with the question of what changes are necessary so that they can actually be made. On a more personal level, Family History in Black and White is the third in a rough series of three novels. And I say rough series because the three are loosely connected, but you don't have to read them in order. All three draw from my own family history. And I find family history useful to interrogate because it personalizes what otherwise an abstract, distant history. It puts me, my family, my people at the center of the story. When I started doing my family history about 15 years ago, initially I didn't encounter slave ownership. Um, I had grown up with the idea I didn't know very much about my mother's family roots, but I sort of, we had the idea in my family that she had come from poor whites from Appalachia. And her, her roots were in Appalachia. It's just that the people weren't poor. And in this way, this is sort of an example of how family histories or family stories, they can send you into productive um, directions, but they can also lead you in the wrong direction or obscure things. So I was digging back. And when I went back about six generations, I discovered an ancestor on my mother's side who owned a family in East Tennessee during the 1800s. And so I got to wondering who were they and what might be the story? Yeah. So can you talk about how did you handle that discovery emotionally when you learned that you descended from slave owners? And then how do you think that knowledge informed your work and specifically your work in this novel? Yeah, I, I can actually picture when I discovered it. I was in Madisonville, Tennessee, um, doing some family history research. Um, and I was sitting in the deeds records office in Monroe County, thumbing through some old handwritten um, dusty records of buying and selling. And I was looking mainly at the buying and selling of land. I was interested in how land was acquired, who, who people, like who my ancestors acquired land from. And I wanted to see how wealth was acquired via land ownership. And so I was kind of thumbing along. And then I saw the purchase of a person. Um, I later found also more about these records looking in the census for 1850 and 1860. But at the time, I was just stunned. I, um, my mind kind of went blank. My body kind of froze. And whereas I had been taking pictures of records as I went, I was too stunned to even take a picture of this. Um, I should have, but I didn't. I had already been grappling with being a descendant of the colonizers of indigenous people, though. So the idea of my people building wealth on the land and labor of people of color wasn't a new idea for me. Still, seeing slave ownership in my family was, was very emotionally jolting. Um, I've tried since then to trace the building of wealth from that fact of ownership, because I know that the exploitation of black labor over hundreds of years and white people building wealth on black labor is why we have discussions and should be doing much more with reparations. But here's what I learned. My four times great grandfather, George C. Harris, owned a family of five. 
his ancestors were also slave owners. And I know much less about them than I do about George C. Harris and the people that came after. Um, George C. Harris's eldest son, who is my three times great grandfather, owned a small plantation in Arkansas, and he owned seven people. He was killed when he was relatively young in a duel, and his assets, including his slaves, were sold to pay off his debts. And so that essentially didn't leave his descendants with anything. His son, plus his two daughters, his son was my great-great-grandfather, DeWitt Harris. He was sent to live with George C. Harris in Tennessee, and he didn't have any inheritance from his father. George C. Harris did accumulate quite a bit of wealth, and so that got passed down. But he divided that wealth among his 14 offspring. So none of them got like a huge tract of land or anything. They all got nest eggs, which is good. It's not huge, but it, it is something. But as I looked at this and tried tracing the transfer of wealth, it, I, I realized that for me, the wealth transfer didn't turn out to be the main story here. It, it actually is the main story in my second novel, The Inheritance, where I had to grapple with uh, um, coming to terms with knowing that a financial inheritance that I had received could directly be traced to the stealing of, of land from Indigenous people. But the main story in Family History in Black and White turned out to be the white psyche of presumed superiority, the right to control the sense of entitlement. And the question that I played with is, can you be a good white person and not work to dismantle racism? And I think my great-great-grandfather, the way I understood him and the way I portray him in the book, would be one of these good white people who doesn't really rock the boat as far as race relations goes, but treats people of color as well as whites people humanely. Today, we have many good white people who are descendants of slave owners. So I wanted to ask, how does that inherited sense of entitlement continue to play out? And if you become aware of that in your own life and you want to interrupt that cycle, how might a parent try to interrupt it when raising their own white kids? And so this was a question that I wanted to explore with the novel. Um, a challenge I have as a writer when I'm dealing with these issues is I want to engage writers who may find the subject matter uncomfortable or challenging and may otherwise not pick up the book. Like I was just talking to somebody the other day who was white about the book and he said, oh, okay, you're dealing with race. Well, I'm not interested in that. And then he just put the book down, walked off. Um, so how do you, so I've, I've been working at how do you try to construct a story that the reader would want to read and keep turning the pages to find out what happens and in the process embed the issues within the story. So how did you ultimately answer that question then of, you know, can you be a good white person without actually disrupting uh, this racist structure that's been in place for so long? Well, I don't think you can. The book doesn't directly tell you that. What the book tries to do is have you grapple with that yourself, but I don't think you can. Interesting. So you talk about some of your challenges as a writer. Um, I imagine one of those is informing characters that 
have a different background than you do. For example, you are obviously white. Uh, you have a character in the book uh, who is black. Uh, her name is Roxanne. She's a black teacher. How did you inform that character? Did you interview black women who work in education? How did you, as you say in your introduction, get to know her from the inside? That's a really good question. Um, initially, I worried about this. She was actually not my first Black character in my novels, but she was the one that was front and center where the others were more secondary characters. Um, but I've known many Black women as colleagues and as friends for about five decades. And so I based her on a composite of people that I've known. And, and since in my professional work, um, I work a lot with with race and social justice issues in education. As a part of my just ongoing day-to-day -day work, I engage with um, black women, black men, Latinos, et cetera, around these issues. So as I was starting to construct her, um, I found that just drawing on the people I've known and the interactions I've had with people for, as I say, about five decades, I could hear her, I could visualize her, I could feel her, um, and I could, I could see her reacting to different situations and creating different situations. I did then have some Black women friends read a draft of the manuscript and give me feedback on it. And their, their corrections were, were very small. Um, not everybody even had corrections. And this isn't to say that all Black women will find Roxanne's ring true, but the readers, the beta readers that I have, as well as Black women endorsers of the book, um, did like her and have been recommending the book to people. A person who took on actually a greater role than I had anticipated when I started off was Roxanne's mother. And again, she was based on um, older black women who I've known. And she actually becomes the person who at the end brings the whole story together. And I hadn't anticipated that. It was almost as if she just went ahead and kind of took charge over how the book was gonna end, which I found really interesting. What was more of a struggle for me has been to capture Ben, who's a white male protagonist in the book in complexity. I realized when I was writing my first novel, Family History in Black and White, that I tend to oversimplify, I mean, your first novel, excuse me, um, White Bread, that I tend to oversimplify white male characters. And I think this is because um, I want to take the power and privilege that's conferred on white men, whether they want that power and privilege or not, society confers it on you. And in that critique, I can end up throwing metaphorical darts at a person, or creating a cartoon character, rather than actually delving in and trying to understand the person and try to see the world from that person's perspective. And as I was working on family history in black and white, it was a female colleague, beta reader, who helped me complexify Ben. There were several places where she said, you know, you need to go deeper here. How's Ben thinking about this? What? And, and so I think that made Ben a more complex character. Um, but that, that was the characterization that I struggled with the most. That's really interesting that there was another woman who pointed out the fact that you were flattening a male character. Yeah, yeah, I, I've thought about that. Um, yeah, but her feedback was spot on and very helpful. Was there anything from any, you said that the feedback from some of the Black women 
that you had read the book was minimal. Was there anything, even if it was small, that was transformative about their feedback at all or anything eye-opening? No, um, I mean, one of them asked, I had a, a paragraph that she said, I don't understand what this paragraph means. And it was in relationship to Roxanne um, talking with somebody in the book, I sort of forget. But when I read the paragraph, I didn't understand what it meant either. So I took it out. Um, another reader pointed out that she wasn't real happy with the idea of Roxanne um, not being married and having a daughter. Um and but but that's a reality of uh, Roxanne did grow up actually in a two parent household and her father died of a heart attack. But the, the reality but you know, there are people, a lot of people today who have kids and they aren't married. And the 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 who the father is is enough of an integral part of the story and what the relationship was between him and Roxanne that that that's why the story was constructed that way why her family was constructed that way um but that was kind of that was sort of the main kind of pushback that I've gotten from one person talked about how that process in your first book with one of the white male characters, uh, how that differed uh, from family history in black and white. How else does this differ from your previous novel, White Bread? Well, White Bread asks why many white people don't see themselves as cultural. And this was something that I could see all the time when I was working with teachers um, in the university. White people tend to see people of color as having culture and will sometimes envy that, but don't see themselves as having culture. And part of that involves asking the question of what happened to the European cultures and languages that our immigrant ancestors brought with them. Um, For instance, in my own case, on my father's side, they're descendants of German immigrants, Um, and, and some only about two generations back from immigration from Germany. So I grew up knowing that my father's side was German, but not knowing much of anything German. I learned German when I went to school because I signed up for it, but I didn't learn any German in the household. I didn't learn anything about uh, German American history. I didn't learn anything about German literature till I studied it at the university. So White Bread asks why this is the case. Um, What happened to those cultures and languages? And is why is this of any relevance now? And in White Bread, I do play with the idea that we tend to expect people when they immigrate to the U.S. to shed their culture and language and become so-called American. And those of us who are white think that our ancestors just came and willingly gave up whatever they had in order to become American. Um, But it's actually a lot more complicated than that. And so I want people to delve into those complications. Um, A project that I'm working on right now, kind of slowly because other things keep getting in the way, but the seed is um, I had a great-great-grandmother on my mother's side who became an anti-Chinese activist in San Francisco during the 1800s. And I wanted to know and play with what that was all about and what that legacy means for us today, especially given the violence that Chinese and other Asian Americans experience being scapegoated for COVID. Um, but as a, as a white person with a family background that 
that many of my students would describe it as white bread in that my ancestors came from a variety of different countries at a variety of different times. Um, I found that interrogating my past is really interesting and um, fruitful for providing multiple entrees to exploring race, ethnicity, and culture in the U.S. White people often think of white history as somewhat disconnected from the histories of people of color. But I'm finding the opposite. And in all of my novels, I start making these connections. Um, But I'm, I'm finding that, and I sort of knew this intellectually, but I'm finding it at a much more personal level when I delve into my own background, that we're all very connected. It's just we're connected in ways that white people can find uncomfortable. So in my various... Um, fiction writings, I try to gently pull people into looking at that. Well, looking forward to that next project uh, and hopefully hearing from you again sounds really fascinating. Uh, Christine Sleater, she's the author of Family History in Black and White. Christine, thanks again. Thank you. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. 